Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to History of Europe, Gibatos, the Portuguese Voyages of Discovery and the Battle of Dieu, Part 2. To medieval Europe, the Far East was a realm of great mysteries and marvels. Maps of the era depicted the region as the Garden of Eden, the paradise from where humanity itself originated. The Garden of Eden had been closed off since the fall, and shown on medieval maps as guarded by sword-wielding angels, a wolf-lame or wilderness, writhing with snakes. Likewise, the Far East had been blocked off to Christendom since the rise of Islam in the 7th century. Trade networks between East and West continued through the centuries, but since Westerners were unable to travel into the South and East Asia, knowledge of the region was lost to them, and replaced by tales of mysterious tribes and fabulous monsters. Somewhere East, they believed, was a great Christian kingdom, led by a mighty ruler known as Prester John. If only he could be contacted, he could be an invaluable ally against their Muslim enemies. Another great mystery was the origin of the various eastern spices, such as pepper, which the Europeans were so fond of, but had to pay exorbitant prices for. The first real information about the Far East reached medieval Europe during the period of the Mongol dominance of Central Asia in the 13th century. In 1271, the famous Phoenician merchant traveller Marco Polo set out for China, where he became a trusted envoy of the great Mongol leader Kublai Khan. The tales he told of the East appeared so fanciful to many Europeans back home that he was widely disbelieved. Then, with the downfall of the Mongols, the overland routes across Central Asia became unsafe and virtually all travel between Europe and Asia ceased, even more so after the fall of Constantinople in 1453. Muslims blocked all routes east, the Ottomans in Asia Minor and the Mamluk dynasty in Egypt and the Levant. The wealth of the east was traded through Cairo, Alexandria and Damascus and monopoly prices, with the only European beneficiaries being the Venetians and Genoese, who sold the goods onto the rest of Europe at great profit. All this was about to change thanks to a series of remarkable voyages of the Portuguese, a crucial moment being the first successful European circumnavigation of southern Africa by Bartolomeu Dias in 1487, as described last week. After 1487, there was a pause of eight years in the Portuguese expeditions of discovery. 
King John II of Portugal was caught up in hard-fought campaigns in Morocco at the end of the 1480s and began to suffer from a kidney disease which would finally kill him. Then, in 1493, there came a potentially devastating blow to Portuguese ambitions when a Genoese sailor named Christopher Columbus returned from a voyage across the Atlantic. He claimed to have discovered a western route to the Indies, although it was later discovered he had in fact landed in America. The long decades of Portuguese discoveries were in danger of being trumped by the rival Kingdom of Spain, whose rulers Ferdinand and Isabella had sponsored Columbus's trip, after Portugal had declined in favour of their expeditions to Africa. Papal legates oversaw the negotiations of the two countries at a meeting in the Spanish town of Torcidias, just across the border from Portugal. It is not clear how much each side knew of each other's discoveries at the moment in time in June 1494, but it was agreed to divide any newly discovered lands across Meridian, 370 leagues west of the Cape Verde Islands, off the west coast of Africa. Lands to the east would belong to Portugal, and the land to the west to Spain. Nigel Cliff, in his book, The Last Crusade, The Epic Voyages of Vasco da Gama, described the treaty as the most outrageous cartel of all time. Quote, Soon nations whose names were barely known to Europe would discover that they had been parceled out between two European powers they had never heard of. End quote. To this day, in fact, the Treaty of Tosadias has defined essentially the border between Portuguese-speaking Brazil and the rest of South America. In October 1495, a new king ascended to the Portuguese throne. Manuel I did not expect to become king, as he was some way down the line of inheritance. It took the death or exile of six people to place him on the throne, and he took this as a sign that he had been chosen by God. For this, and because he came to power at a critical moment in the history of Portuguese discovery, he is nicknamed the Fortunate. Manuel believed that he had inherited the mantle of his great-uncle, Henry the Navigator, who had sponsored the Portuguese voyages of discovery of the mid-1400s. His mission, he considered, was to outflank Islam, link up with Prester John and rumoured Christian communities of India, seize control of the spice trade, and destroy the wealth that had empowered the Mamluk sultans in Cairo. It was a mission, writes Roger Crowley in his book, Conquerors, How Portugal Forged the First Global Empire, forged not only as a religious crusade, but also had a material dimension, to replace the Venetians as the main European traders between East and West. The project was thus, at the same time, imperial, religious and economic. By the 1490s, the voyages along the Atlantic coast had transformed Lisbon into a dynamic and prosperous city. Lisbon was also at the cutting edge of new ideas about cosmography and navigation, and was benefiting from a wave of Jewish immigrants who had been expelled from Spain in 1492. The Portuguese also learned how to produce high-quality bronze cannon and techniques for how to deploy them on ships. These advances in artillery were to prove crucial in the events to unfold. At this time, the Portuguese also began to adopt a new type of ship for their long-distance voyages. The caravels which had served them well until now were too small for comfort on voyages which now measured in years rather than months and too light to be safe in fierce Atlantic storms. The new ships were heavier, slower and less capable of taking the winds than the caravels, but they were also roomier, steadier and safer. 
King Manuel spared no expense in equipping the next expedition of 1497. Two square rigged ships were built to order at considerable cost, the Sao Gabriel and the Sao Rafael. They were accompanied by a caravel and a storeship. The man Manuel chose to captain the expedition was Vasco da Gama, whose name is still today the one most famously associated with the Portuguese voyages of discovery. Little is known about da Gama's early life except that he was born in the port of Sines, south of Lisbon, and that he was a member of the lesser nobility. In character he was known for his short temper and described as bold in action, severe in his orders and very formidable in his anger. He was probably chosen more to command men and negotiate with the rulers of the Orient than for his knowledge of sailing. And so, in July 1497, Vasco da Gama and his crew set sail from Lisbon on a mission to rediscover India. We are fortunate for there to be a surviving diary of the voyage written by a crew member of the Sao Rafael. In all, the full company consisted of between 148 and 170 men, comprising pilots, clerks, petty officers, interpreters and seamen, selected from earlier voyages to Africa. There were also ten or so ex-convicts, whose sentences had been commuted by the king to serve on the ships. At de Gamma's orders, they were to go ashore in dangerous places to act as scouts or messengers, or to gather information until a later fleet picked them up. The exact route taken by Vasco de Gama is unknown, but must have been similar to that of the earlier voyages of Bartolomeu Dias. Conditions on the ship were extremely tough. The captain and the chief officers ate and slept in their private cabins, the others according to their status. Each day was marked by the coiling of the watch, the hours of meals, the emergencies to fix running repairs, and routine prayers morning and night. In stormy weathers, the sailors would hang from the rigging, adjusting the sails as they were lashed by the rain and the wind. On calmer days, the men would find amusement, perhaps go fishing, sing and dance to pipe and drum, or hear the priests read the lives of the saints. As the months wore on, they became increasingly emaciated, sleep-deprived and weakened by seasickness, dysentery or fever. Deprived of the vitamin C from fresh fruit, they were also prone to scurvy and at times they were unable to make land for weeks and end, and so were in danger of running out of fresh water. Encounters with the tribes of South Africa were tense affairs, with neither side sure whether to trust the other, but no major problems occurred. In late November, the Portuguese circumnavigated the southern tip of Africa, and started sailing up the east coast of Africa. They passed the last stone pillar left by Bartolomeu Dias, and in January 1498 met a number of men from a tribe called the Bantu, who indicated that they were familiar with ships like those of the Portuguese. This made the Gama hope that he was at last reaching the fringe of the Indian Ocean trading zone. Soon after, the fleet arrived at Mozambique, the most southerly of the Swahili cities of the East African coast. It became immediately apparent, as the Gamma ships approached the town of Mozambique, that this was different from the Africa of their previous experience, with well-built thatched houses of straw. The people, evidently Muslim merchants, richly dressed in kaftans, fringed with silk and embroidered with gold, were urban Arabic speakers, with whom their translators could communicate. And the welcome was unusually friendly. 
It was disturbing to discover that Muslim traders controlled the entire East African coast, but there was also good news. The Portuguese were enthralled to hear news that Prester John resided not far away and that he held many cities. The chronicler wrote in his diary, quote, We cried for joy and prayed God to grant us health so that we might behold what we so much desired. End quote. The Sultan of Mozambique came on board in the spirit of friendship, and despite the Gamma's attempts to lay on a show, he was disappointed by the presents on offer. The Portuguese, apparently ignorant of the wealth of this new world, had brought with them only trinkets like brass bells, coral hats and the modest garments, making the Sultan suspicious of their identity and intentions. The Gamma, realising that the Sultan had assumed that they were fellow Muslims, tried to play along, claiming that his men did not like to bring the Quran with them at sea. The Gamma explained that he had been sent by a great and mighty king to discover a way to the Indies, and for this purpose asked if he could hire two pilots who knew the Indian Ocean. The Sultan readily agreed, and the two men duly reported for duty. Yet there was mutual suspicion between the two sides, and when the ship sailed away from the town to an island three miles away to conduct a secret mass, one of the pilots, realising the strange visitors were in fact Christians, decided to abscond. The Gamma sent two boats to hunt for him, but they were met by six armed vessels, with an order for the Portuguese to return to Mozambique town. The Gamma refused, had remaining pilot tied up, and ordered his gunners to fire their cannon at the Africans' boats. As Nigel Cliff puts it, quote, The moment that Christians and Muslims had knowingly come face to face in Indian Ocean, relations had skidded from jovial to hostile. The old bitter rivalry had been exported to new waters. The first shots had been fired, and the report would echo across the centuries. End quote. Relations between the two sides now seemed beyond repair. The Portuguese believed that the Sultan had intended to capture and kill them by treachery as soon as he realised that they were Christians, so they turned down calls for peace. The Gamma ordered his crew to move on, but the weather thwarted their attempts to depart. The wind turned and forced them back. The Portuguese attempted a landing to collect fresh water, but they found the source defended by a group of African soldiers. So de Gamma ordered his men to open fire, forcing the defenders to flee. The Sultan was outraged and threatened consequences if the Portuguese attempted to land again. The two sides attempted to negotiate with de Gamma, ordering the turn of the escaped pilot, but neither side was willing to back down. When hundreds of Africans appeared on the beach, armed with spears, daggers, bows and slings, the Portuguese fired upon them with their cannons. Any serious chance of a truce vanished, and the Portuguese ships hastily sailed away as soon as the winds allowed. A pattern of frustration, suspicion and aggression was emerging. The Portuguese captains became increasingly short-tempered, desperate for reliable provisions and the friendly welcome of a Christian port. As they sailed further north along the coast of East Africa, they passed a large archipelago of tropical islands edged with mangrove forests and ringed by coral reefs. Da Gama had little choice but to rely on the remaining captured African pilot to navigate the waters, but with some justification was wary of being lured into a trap. The pilot suggested that they make their way to the island of Kiroa, of the coast of present-day Tanzania, which he claimed was Christian. 
In fact, Gerouar was then the centre of a powerful medieval sultanate, whose authority stretched the entire length of the Swahili coast. Probably fortunately, the Portuguese passed by the island. And the next destination was Mombasa, today in present-day Kenya. As in Mozambique, the local sultan welcomed the visitors. How genuine he was is not clear, but relations very quickly broke down, and the Portuguese moved on again. At their next destination, the port of Malindi, the Portuguese had more luck. Again, the local sultan welcomed the visitors as they arrived, and negotiations began. The Gama was by now highly suspicious of anyone he came across, but it turned out that the Sultan of Menindi was keen to seek allies in a contest with Muslim trading rivals up and down the coast. The Christians would in time understand how to exploit such splits between local groups for their advantage. In Menindi they picked up a pilot who at last they found they could trust. Next, the Portuguese set sail across the Arabian Sea to try and reach India. Fortunately for them, the winds were blowing in their favour, and the journey took only 23 days. On the 18th of May, 1487, they caught sight of a high mountain range in the distance. The following day, a great storm blew up, a prelude to the monsoon. But when the air cleared, their new pilot recognised the coast, telling them that they had reached the city of Calicut and advised them to visit there. It was a historic moment, after an epic journey of 309 days and 12,000 miles, Vasco da Gama and his men had finally reached India. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online, and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Since time immemorial, the trading calendar of the Indian Ocean has been dictated by the weather phenomenon known as the monsoon. Merchants had been able to rely on seasonal winds, blowing from the southwest in summer and from the northeast in winter. The monsoon also caused an annual period of intense rain in India, beginning in late May or early June and ending around the beginning of October. The region where the Portuguese arrived is called the Malabar Coast, which runs along the southwest shoreline of the Indian subcontinent. Geographically, it comprises the wettest regions of India, as the Western Ghats mountain range intercepts the moisture-laden monsoon rains, especially on the westward-facing mountain slopes. The Portuguese arrived out of season, just as the monsoon was about to get into full swing. 
From the shore there was immediate interest, the locals curious about the strange ships that had just arrived and their unlikely timing. And relations between the two sides started off well. The city of Calicut had become a premier centre for the trading of spices along the Malabar coast thanks to its rulers' reputation for good governance and fair dealing with merchants. Its great bazaar stretched a mile, brimming with all types of exotic goods from as far east as China. Various spices as well as various stones, pearls, musk, fine earthenware, gold, wax, ivory and virtually anything you could wish to buy. Pepper, ginger and cinnamon were grown in the hinterland and sold in vast quantities. Other spices and exotic goods brought in from elsewhere. At this time of year, the harbour was virtually empty, but soon it would fill up with ships from across the region, including from great ports in the Arabian Peninsula, such as Aden and Jeddah. The Portuguese were ecstatic, not only to have discovered such a magnificent Indian trading city, but to hear that the city was predominantly Christian. In fact, something must have been lost in translation, for the majority population were actually Hindu. There were also a substantial settled Muslim trading community, as well as travelling merchants from the Arabian Peninsula. The local monarch, known as the Zamorin of Calicut, lived with other high-caste Hindus in a palace some distance from the city, but he owned a separate residence in Calicut. The Zamorin was pleased to meet the curious arrivals, and set off with his retinue to the city. He personally provided the Portuguese with a pilot to help lead the ships to better anchorage, some distance away. The gunner agreed to move his ships, but still cautious, he would not proceed right into berth that the pilot indicated. A degree of caution and suspicion among the Portuguese was perfectly understandable, given their experiences along the African coast and their disorientation in this strange new world. Still, the gunner decided to trust Zamorin enough to agree to meet him in person in the city. The first sight of the Hindu monarch impressed the Portuguese greatly. Quote, the king was of a brown complexion, large stature and well advanced in years. On his head he had a cap or mitre, adorned with precious stones and pearls, and had jewels of the same kind in his ears. He wore a jacket of fine cotton cloth, having buttons of large pearls and buttonholes wrought with gold thread. About his middle he had a piece of white calico, which came only down to his knees, and both his fingers and toes were adorned with many golden rings, set with fine stones. His arms and legs were covered with many golden bracelets. Relations, however, later deteriorated when the Portuguese presented their gifts, Twelve pieces of striped cloth, four scarlet hoods, six hats, four strings of coal, six hand-washing basins, a case of sugar and two casks, each of honey and oil. The Zamorin's representatives just laughed, saying that the poorest merchants from Mecca or any trader in India gave better gifts. If they wanted to make a present, it should be of gold. Dagama tried to argue that he was an ambassador, not a merchant, but the Indians were not impressed. Still, the Zamorin was uncertain of how to play these strange visitors, and did not want to snub a potential opportunity out of hand, so he permitted them to bring their goods for sale to the city's bazaar. The Portuguese were disappointed at the prices they received for their merchandise, but they were at least able to buy small quantities of spices and precious stones. By the beginning of August they were ready to leave, and probably keen to get away before the heavy influx of Arab ships 
but unfortunately, relations with the Zamorin at this point soured. Portuguese diplomacy in Calicut was hampered by linguistic difficulties, relying on translations back and forth between the Portuguese, Arabic and the local Malayalam language by interpreters who de Gama did not trust. The Portuguese were also understandably unfamiliar with the established procedures of the Zamorin's court. During their three-month stay in India, they were able to gather some reasonably accurate commercial intelligence, but their understanding of the local politics and culture remained confused. Most notably, they had assumed the population was divided between Muslims and Christians, and therefore took the Hindus they encountered to be Eastern Christians, albeit of a somewhat dubious tradition. Before leaving, the Portuguese captain sent a group of his crew, led by an officer, Diego Diaz, to the city to offer one last gift to the ruler, and in return requested cinnamon and cloves, and samples of other spices. The Zamorin was not impressed, brushed away the gifts, and warned the Portuguese they would need to pay the customary departure tax before they could leave. Diaz bowed out, but when he tried to get back to the ship he was tailed, and his group captured and imprisoned. It appeared that representatives of the Muslim merchants of the city, worried the Portuguese might ruin their trade, had tried to convince the Zamorin that the visitors were no better than common pirates. The government responded by seizing a number of Indian merchants and threatened that if his men were not freed, he would return to Portugal with his hostages. After tense negotiations, the Portuguese were freed, but the government chose to break his promise and kept his hostages prisoner as he set off back to Portugal. The Zamorin was furious at the broken bargain and sent a fleet of boats in pursuit, but as they reached the Portuguese, they were fired upon. A running fight ensued for about an hour until a thunderstorm provided cover for the Portuguese to escape. They chose, however, a bad time of year to make the trip. The northeast winds of the monsoon had not yet set in, and so the ship spent three months struggling back to East Africa across the Arabian Sea at the mercy of successive calms and storms. The heat was insufferable, the water turned foul, and the food was running low, causing deaths of some crewmen and scurvy among the rest. Fortunately, they were able to rest and restock at Melindi, before sailing further on, rounding the Cape of Good Hope in March 1499, and finally reaching Lisbon in August 1499 to scenes of jubilation. Writes A.R. Disney in his book, A History of Portugal and the Portuguese Empire, quote, Vasco da Gama's voyage of 1497 to 1499 was a major achievement of endurance, navigation and seamanship. The voyage at the time was the longest in distance ever recorded, but is perhaps best measured in terms of its duration. It took da Gama over 10 months to get from Lisbon to Calicut, and about 11 months to return. Dwarfing all previous voyages of the Age of Discovery, it must have acquired exceptional tenacity. End quote. Finally, after decades of effort, the fabled passage to India had been shown to be real. Church bells were rung and jousts, bullfights and other entertainments decreed by the exultant King Manuel. Manuel immediately set about on a major rebuilding of Lisbon, in a style lavish enough to match his soaring ambitions. Majestic new palaces were built, as were spacious warehouses to receive the exotic goods. Portugal, a once port and isolated state, has suddenly catapulted itself into fame and wealth, and was on the brink of establishing a global trading empire.
My name is Carl Rylett, and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. You can get in touch on the Facebook page, or the blog www.historyeurope.net, or on Twitter at History Europe KB. I hope you can join me next week for the story of how Portugal managed to secure control of the spice trade of the Indian Ocean from the local Muslim merchants. Until then, have a great week and goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.